You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What would have happened without Daniel Tompkins? We think of good-looking TV-type candidates as a 20th or 21st century thing. Kennedy stands out. But in a way, that makes no sense at all. People weren't simply ugly before who got into politics. In fact, in the 19th century, politics were personal. It also mattered what one looked like. Now, Perhaps 19th century people didn't quite have the cult of personality of today. The celebrity bug. That's clearly part of American life. But there's no reason to think that they deigned for ugliness either. Thus, Daniel D. Tompkins rose through New York politics at a young age. Always described as polished, handsome, a beauty even. Painters, notably Trumbull, captured the dashing young governor of the great empire state, the state, and the man's career bursting, just like the opening of the Erie Canal that so much funded the state's progress. Yet, none of that about Daniel Tompkins is the flicker of history about this vice president that anyone knows if they know it at all. If you know Tompkins at all, a few New Yorkers may know Tompkins Square Park or Tompkinsville, Staten Island. They may figure it's named after somebody. And then if anyone knows more about Tompkins, it's bad. That he was a drunk. And it's hard to argue with that. Daniel Tompkins, this this really was a guy who had it all. I spoke with Tim Pearson, who is the author of Second Fiddle, The Strange, Sick, Silly, Sad, and Soused Men. We elected vice president. I highly recommend his book. It is available on Amazon. Again, that's Second Fiddle, Tim Pearson. I mean, he was smart. He was good looking. He was successful. He was a success. A good family. He married well, went to Columbia, served on the New York Supreme Court governor at age 32. This was a guy going places. Born to tenant farmers in what is now a relatively tony suburb in Westchester County known as Scarsdale, then farmland. 
His parents were pro-independence activists in the area. His mother joined all the committees that women could join, protesting American grievances against British rule. His father took arms in the militia and fought in the war. After the war, that led to a seat in the state legislature. Young Tompkins went to Columbia, did well. He made bar in New York State and married the daughter of a wealthy merchant. It was a neat meet for him because his new father-in-law was well-connected. And Daniel Tompkins would launch into politics when he was just 26 and began in that New York style of American politics, a rap-rap on the door, a visit to the tavern, a corralling of people on the cobblestone, knowledge of who is in this house, who's behind that window shutter, what is that man's name? Samuel, is that you? Did you receive the note about our ticket? Is that man a Republican or a Federalist? Will he listen? Has he voted? And with New York's wink-wink, nod-nod rules about voting in property, yes, the state required property ownership, but no, he didn't really have to have a lot of property. Smallholders, people who group together into Tiny pieces of land, just so they could vote, were part of New York City politics. He had performed well at Columbia, and now he was in this school of street politics, and he excelled. He knew every face, remembered every face, every name. He owned the 7th Ward of New York. By age 29, Tompkins, like his father, earned a seat in the state legislature, quickly followed at age 30 by a seat in Congress, and in age 31, he was a judge at the Superior Court of New York. And he was smart about his politics. He stayed close to the powerful Clinton family, George Clinton, who would become vice president, the fourth vice president of the United States, and his son, DeWitt Clinton. By age 34, Tompkins made a run at the state's highest office, the governorship. And in what should have been a lopsided match against him, he took on the well-connected Livingston family and their candidate. Though he had become a city dweller and wasn't living in Scarsdale anymore, he was happy to use the moniker, the farmer's boy, when he ran. And in that election, with all of the new political engineering going on in the streets of the city, and with the new republicanism, he beat the Livingstons and won the election. He was re-elected again in 1810, enormously popular. And he started to aim at national politics, aligning himself with Madison, James Madison, the incumbent president, giving him advice on patronage when federal patronage was to be doled out in New York. But it all kind of came crashing down for him, and it pretty much started with the War of 1812. You know, Bruce, people don't really think about the War of 1812 very much. There was a real war going on, going on over in Europe at the time. You had French troops marching to and fro. Napoleon was shouting orders. Russia was in. But over here on this side of the ocean, we were having our own little to-do, even though it wasn't nearly as big or as important, because this was really not that long after the Revolutionary War. And he had the British still hanging around up there in Canada. 
And they were still a little bitter about the pasting they'd gotten. And they would occasionally look across the border and, and think they wouldn't mind taking another swing at us if the opportunity arose. And it did, because a couple things happened. First thing, Bruce, the British Navy at the time was getting a little bit short of sailors. They started grabbing sailors off of U.S. boats and conscripting them into their British Navy. Well, that didn't sit well with people. That got them mumbling and grumbling a little bit. Kidnapping would turn into one a bit sour. Second, because they were at war with Napoleon at the time, they said, hey, we don't want you trading with the French anymore. All right, turn your boats around. Well, tempers really started to rise now. That was a big chunk of our economy, trading with France. And then third, we were really starting to expand westward into lands held by American Indian tribes at the time. And lo and behold, the Indians started showing up with British-made weapons and firing British-made ammo. Well, we couldn't have that. So things really hit a fever pitch. In Congress, you had a, a, a group known as the Warhawks, and they uh, they said, you know what, this this is not going to work, and it might just be convenient to go ahead and try to take Canada as long as we're at it. So they convinced Pre President Madison to declare war in June 1812. Now he was breaking with the Clintons when war came. The Clintons actually were opposed to war. DeWitt Clinton's going to run for president as somebody who is not so much in favor of the war effort, but not, of, of course, not pro-British either. But Tompkins, even though he's a New Yorker, and many New Yorkers were not pleased with a war that might cost a lot of business, he knew New York State would have to be ready. He supplied men and material to the war effort. But there was a problem with this, and I talk about that with Tim. Well, at the start of the war, the U.S. really did not have a very large standing army, only a few thousand men. So President Madison said, look, all you governors, all you governors up there in the states bordering Canada, you've got some militia, right? Call them up, stick a gun in their hands, you're good to go. And that's truly what happened. Most of the war, at, at least in the early stages, was fought by about half a million militia men from these states. But the problem was there just wasn't any money. And so here you had Governor Tompkins in New York, trying to raise his militia. Well, there's no money for it. And so you had militia without uniforms or militia with no weapons or weapons with no ammo. And he thought, what am I going to do about this? Right? But he would write letters. He would write letters back to President Madison complaining about the situation. In fact, there was one letter where he said that we have no munitions, not even a camp kettle, anywhere on the frontier. Well, President Madison pretty much told him just to, to do your best. You'll be fine. So what Tompkins did, as British cannons were rolling southward, he said, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. He started opening up his wallet and paying for funding this war himself. He endorsed loan after loan from banks, signing personally and as governor. He took out loans from banks. He took out loans from friends to pay for this. They probably also... Uh, dipped into state funds a little bit to, to pay for this, but you know, this was a war, things happen, right? Paying for salaries, bounties, uniforms, rifles, the hats with the visors and the feathers that were so popular then. One of the problems in addition, though, was he was, was a really bad accountant, and he just simply didn't pay attention to where this money was going, what was taken out, where it was dispensed to, didn't keep receipts. So there's a lot of confusion going on. He gained popularity for all this, especially when the war concluded in 1815. He won in a landslide over Rufus King. 
his Federalist rival in the 1816 election. Honest, candid, prompt, indefatigable, said the author Washington Irving about Daniel Tompkins. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. I think he would have been fine if, in fact, he documented everything. But he didn't. And newspapers celebrated him. I mean, with so many Virginians becoming president, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, maybe it was time for a New Yorker, the New York Papers said. And Tompkins' name was fielded for that first office. He was lauded for his efforts in this war. The, the newspapers called him a great war governor. He was, he was toasted at public gatherings. People would cheer for him as he went by. But despite Tompkins standing in New York and friendly ties to James Madison, despite being a Republican who win a race against the Federalists in a state, despite all these assets, he wasn't known outside New York. And Congress essentially in 1816, was still picking the president. It would be the caucus of the majority party, in this case, the Republicans. Federalists only had a few seats in Congress. They would get together and pick who is going to be the next president. Wouldn't last too many more elections, but in 1816, this was still the way it generally went. And the Republican caucus goes between Crawford and Monroe and decides to pick James Ron Monroe, who had been Secretary of State, Secretary of War, and how does a party presidential nominee cool the fire? You know, this is another Virginian president. What can you offer the state of New York? Why the nomination of your young, excelling governor, of course. President uh, President Madison was, was done uh, in, in the White House, and they had... The, the the party had put up James Monroe as his candidate, and they were looking for a VP. Well, you know, Tompkins kind of kind of fit the bill. I mean, he was he was a good looking guy, right? He was a, he had the movie star quality looks. He was a celebrated um, war governor. He was from the most populous state in the Union at the time, New York, um, and and he was perfect. And they said, you know what, you're our guy. And what they didn't know, of course, that he was in such financial peril. And if they had known that, they probably wouldn't have chosen him. Tompkins likes the idea. 
he doesn't want a cabinet job because, well, he's accrued all of those loans and a cabinet job wouldn't allow him to leave New York to earn money for his family. With the vice presidency, and this is how different the vice president was over time, the vice presidential office, with the vice presidency, he wouldn't have to leave and be down in the District of Columbia all the time. That was the way the vice presidency was viewed, and although many incumbent vice presidents uh, left the District of Columbia a lot of the time, Tompkins would really make use of that privilege. Things are really going great for Tompkins, or so it seemed. The only downside to the war was was his war injury, if you can call it that. Um, the story goes that he was in Brooklyn inspecting Fort Greene um, when, when, as he was riding by, some, some soldiers let out a great cheer, which spooked the horse, tossed him to the ground, and, and, and he hurt his rib. It's that injury, a fall from his horse, while preparing New York's defenses from a possible British attack. Rib injury is a pretty difficult thing, and that's going to keep you out of, uh, keep you in some pain uh, for quite a while. So, although the new presidency starts with uh, President Monroe joining him as he uh, tours the nation, Monroe's going to tour the nation, the era of good feelings, a lot of good feeling between Federalists and Republicans after having beaten the British in the War of 1812. Monroe and Tompkins together watch boats in the New York Harbor during his visit. He's going to end up spending a lot of his first term as vice president confined to bed. And what's more, he starts self-medicating. He probably, he probably had all along a predilection for drinking. I mean, there was, there was his famous uh, essay in college where, where he wrote, he wrote um, uh, an essay called On Drunkenness and Extolling the Virtues of Excessive Drinking. And, and he probably was that way through most of his life. But it was after he achieved the vice presidency, where where he was faced with financial ruin, that, that he really started to hit the bottle a little more than he should, and people noticed. Even when his condition got a little better, it was his finance that really hurt. The New York government, somewhat ungracefully, there's new people in charge. Uh, DeWitt Clinton, who feels betrayed at this point, is now a rival and is, is governor. Ungratefully, they audit the state's expenses and find a $120,000 shortfall. He probably dipped into state funds with, without permission to do so, and that, of course, came back to haunt him later when, uh, when New York presented him with a bill for $120,000, which, of course, at the time was, was a staggering amount of money. And it was, it was this, this financial shortfall, where he went from being a, a revered war governor, a, a hero, all right, the, the savior of New York, to faced with, with the embarrassment of, of being a financial failure that really turned him to the bottle. Now, Tompkins says, you know, I, I, they say, you use that to pay interest on the loan. And Tompkins is like, yes, that, those were loans that I used to finance the f- state's defenses. But the state said the loan was his, and he owed the money. There's some negotiations. State at one point offers him a credit, but Tompkins says he wants the value of that credit considering the inflation of the money after the war. And there's more. 
the f- United States federal government is not as organized then as it is now, and you don't have that general accounting office that's kind of handling everything, and you have to submit forms and then get paid. It's a very active process. Tompkins is not very organized about this, and he's not always getting his vice presidential pay to even the small amount to pay some of his debts. The Senate of New York votes him a credit. The Assembly allied with Clinton blocks it. The country can stand a lot of things and will forgive a lot of things. A, a crook. They can even understand a crook or, or a buffoon or, a, you know, a, a scoundrel. But being a, a, a failure at finances, right, this, this, isn't, this isn't acceptable. And it wouldn't be acceptable. And it's something that, that I don't think he was prepared to face, which, which is what led him, as his wife Hannah suggested, really into this spiral of, of, of drinking. The vice president is now spending a lot of time in New York State and not down in the District of Columbia settling these matters. He uh, he he was was not somebody who watched his 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 pennies all that well, and he really really took a liking to Staten Island. And was just sitting out there in the harbor, wasn't doing anything, and and uh, he would ever so often go down and and uh, and buy a few acres here, a few acres there, and by the time he was done, he owned. 700 acres on Staten Island. And he, he founded a village called Tompkinsville, as you would expect. Um, he named streets after family members, and he was really quite proud of this. I mean, why not? It's your own town, right? But this was a guy who was already broke, and, and, and this was pushing him even, even further into debt. And this is seen in what probably should have been his one shining moment. After all, the vice president is the president of the Senate. And he is the VP during Monroe's term, during the time of the Missouri Compromise, which is going to admit both the states of Maine and the states of Missouri into the Union, one free, one slave, and try to settle the question of whether states out west, new states, will be free or slave states. Here's what the U.S. Senate site says about uh, Tompkins' stint as vice president. The vice president was in poor health. By the fall of 1817, Tompkins was complaining that his injuries had increased upon me for several years until, finally, for the last six weeks, they've confined me to my house and sometimes to my bed. My present prospect is that kind of affliction and confinement for the residue of my life. The problem was so severe that he expected to resign the office of vice president in the next session, if not sooner, as there is very little hope of my being able to perform my duties hereafter. There there aren't that many duties for vice president, but one of those is presiding over the Senate. And there are accounts that, that he was never perfectly sober. Uh, there are accounts that, that, that he would, would mumble semi-incoherently. This isn't something that, that people didn't find out until decades later. They knew at the time. And, and that's, that's really what caused some consternation um, about him being on the ticket. Tompkins does something else. In the middle of this Missouri debate, he leaves the Senate and goes home to New York because now he's decided to run for governor against his old friend and now rival Dewey Clinton. Leaving in the middle of the Missouri debate angered those anti-slavery senators who felt he was needed and they'd possibly need his tie-breaking vote 
and not seeing them there gave heart to the opponents that that tie-breaking vote wouldn't be available. And he was not leading, as he should be. Rufus King lamented that Tompkins had fled the field on the day of battle. Another senator who wants to restrict slavery reviles him as a miserable syncopant who betrayed us to the lords of the South, that smallest of small men, Daniel T. Tompkins. There were many people led by, by William Plumer, who was the governor of New Hampshire, who was the only person, coincidentally, to not vote for Monroe Tompkins. It was, it was almost, a, almost a shutout. Um, and, and the story had always been that William Plumer did that, cast his vote for someone other than Monroe to preserve George Washington as the only shutout victor in the Electoral College. But that really wasn't the case at all. He, Plumer thought Monroe was, was, was mediocre at best, and he really hated Tompkins. He called him grossly intemperate. He said he didn't have the weight of character for the office. He said he grossly neglected his duty. And quite frankly, Plumer had a point because it seems as if three quarters of the time, uh, Tompkins wasn't in his VP chair. He was nowhere to be found. He was off taking a nap somewhere, sleeping it off, having a nip, who knows. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. As a joke, 
a potential title for this cast would be Daniel Tompkins, hunk or drunk. But those two choices, while that might be funny, those two choices are somewhat adequate. Here's this young, dashing governor who actually was quite successful. He does two things that are interesting. Prosecutes the war of 1812 in New York and the state's defenses. And in 1817, sets New York on a path against slavery. Daniel Tompkins convinces the New York State Legislature to end slavery completely in the state. The legislature still drags its feet, but agrees to end it in a decade. This ends slavery's really long and somewhat unknown history in the state of New York, where it was law from 1626 to 1827, central to the day-to-day survival and the economic life of Europeans, the way that New York was set up then in the colonies, and probably the economy was set up to rely on slaves more than any other state that wasn't in the South. And the concentration is in New York City, Manhattan. This new Republican governor ends that. And it's a lot of his personal charisma doing that. His arming of the state and his politics don't fit history's bill of a useless drunk. What would have happened without Daniel Tompkins? Because you had you had British soldiers pouring over the border. You had cannons coming down the road. And without Daniel Tompkins stepping up to do what he did in 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 a way that cost him later his his financial success, his reputation. Nonetheless, if he hadn't funded this war in New York by himself, his his pocketbook, taking out loans from from banks, from 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 his father-in-law, from other individuals, would they have defended New York City? I mean, Washington D.C. was was burned. The British burned Washington D.C., burned the White House. It didn't really matter that much because Washington wasn't that important a city, but New York City was. New York City was was the was the biggest city we had. The writer Clarence Dow, looking back in 1918, writing an article in a prominent journal, goes on a visit to New York City Hall, just as the country is arming to now fight, instead of Britain, to fight Germany. I ascended to the beautiful governor's room on the second floor. I entered and found myself amidst the full-length portraits of so many great governors. I felt as if 140 years of history were looking down on me, and experienced a thrill, something like that which one feels when he first visits Westminster Abbey or some spot like Iona Island. When I saw Daniel Tompkins, his prominent painting, under his name the dates 1807 to 1817, I could not but think about what years they were for the New York and the nation. The inauguration of steam navigation on the Hudson, the War of 1812-1815, and the critical years of recuperation after the war. No one but George Clinton, at the time, had served the length that Tompkins did. Mario Cuomo did later, and a few others, but... This state, Clarence Dallas wrote, owes him quite a debt. But a portrait, and a name of a town on Staten Island he founded, a park... Well-known for many things, the poet Allen Ginsberg, the birthplace of the Hare Krishna movement, an old American elm tree that's as old 
as a civil war, goes back to the civil war, a place where hipsters meet for years, the seedy part of the East Village, now a trendy neighborhood, the scene of riots in the 1990 and a large-scale police action that removed tents of homeless people living there. Tompkins Square Park bears his name. That may be all that history rewards him. He was reelected, but his second term was not very glowing. But that second term, things got a little less eventful, which is probably just fine for him. And in fact, there was there was there was some compensation from uh, from the state of New York. They said, "Okay, we're you know you don't know us quite this much," and so they gave him a little bit. It was it was kind of too little, too late by this point. He had he had owed so many people, including his father in law, who had sued him. And and again, it was it was that stress. In 1822, the Senate adjourned because the vice president was indisposed. There were several times that he'd come down to D.C. and never quite make it to the Senate building and say, I have to get back up to New York. He ruined the friendship that he had, even with President James Monroe. In 1822... During one of his many absences from the Senate, Senate opponents pushed through a bill to withhold salaries of those federal officers whose finances are in arrears, despite a stirring defense of Daniel Tompkins for all he had done to the nation for his service during the War of 1812, despite that stirring defense from Martin Van Buren, future vice president and president. The bill passes, and Tompkins now, in addition to financial problems, has no salary. To clear his name, Tompkins asks that he be put on trial. Financial matters are are not quite settled, but there is eventually a stipend given. It's not enough. When he left office in 1825, he only lived for just a few more weeks after that. And, And once he passed away... His state on Staten Island, his his roads, his town, his his uh, his mansion. It was divided up amongst creditors and sold at sheriff sales. And and poor Hannah's wife was booted out as well. And she went to live with her children until she died just four years after that. I think it's important to study a figure like Daniel Tompkins because it shows you how the textbooks can give us one sentence. So we mustn't blame textbooks. They have a job to do. High school history class is pretty quick. But they often give a one-sentence version of history. And the life of Daniel Tompkins is quite more complicated than that. I believe, as Clarence Dow rediscovered in the 19-teens, there's more to him than just an everyday sot. Although the vice presidential office, as it turned out, was not his greatest moment. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Bruce Carlson. I also have another podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. If you can, subscribe to this program, Vice Presidents. Find us at vicepresidents.wordpress.com. Subscribe. Give us a review on iTunes. It will really help. Thank you.